Good evening. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, my name is Diana Morris, and I have the pleasure of being the director of the Open Society Institute here in Baltimore. And I want to thank you all very much for joining us at another one of our Talking About Race uh, series uh, presentations. Uh, Carla Hayden is unable to be here with us tonight, but she certainly joins me in sending uh, our welcome to you in her best regards. As you know, uh, Inuk Pratt has actually been the partner with us in this Talking About Race series for now over five years, uh, and we both think it's just an important, it's a very important subject for us to continue to explore. Um, I want to um, thank, first of all, some of the sponsors uh, for this. Uh, Vernon and Rosalind Reed and also Sheila Murthy have been sponsors, and we certainly appreciate their support. We've been committed uh, to having these conversations at the Open Society Institute because we try to be very aware of racial dynamics in all the work that we do to try to create greater opportunity and justice here in Baltimore, especially for those in our community who live in poverty and who historically and currently um, experience discrimination. Many of the topics that we've explored in our talking about race are closely related to what we at the Open Society Institute in Baltimore are focusing on. Uh, those include providing drug addiction treatment to those who need it, curtailing the overuse of incarceration and putting programs in place that allow people not to ever get involved in the juvenile or criminal justice system in the first place, um, and for those who need it, making sure that there are second chances. And we also work to ensure that all children have every opportunity to be excited about and fully engaged in school and not pushed out by harsh discipline policies. Today we'll, we will be discussing um, educating young boys of color and we're going to hear from two people who have shared their very personal story of raising their own son, one of their own sons, in a, a this really powerful uh, and compelling film. I know that here in this audience we all have a number of stories that people can tell themselves and we would look forward to hearing about some of that both tonight and at other times. And I think all of us have become very aware of the importance and the great destruction that racial disparities play. We certainly saw that uh, when the nation turned its attention to Ferguson. But I'll say that what is, of course, very disturbing about Ferguson is that it is not any kind of anomaly at all. Our speakers tonight want to make sure that uh, parents raising boys of color create the best situations possible for their children to succeed, have a clear sense of their identity, and are ready to take on the many challenges uh, and great opportunities that they face to reach their full potential. We all know that this is an important task. Michelle Stevenson and Joe Brewster are the authors of the book, Promises Kept, Raising Black Boys to Succeed in School and Life, which I think you all saw you can purchase outside from the Ivy Bookstore and they'll be discussing that book with us tonight. But first and foremost, they are filmmakers. They're the producers and directors of the film America, American Promise, which is a documentary that has been shown in many, many film festivals and also aired on PBS. The film, in fact, premiered at the 2013 Sundance Film Festival, and Michelle and Joe also launched a national campaign at Sundance to help raise $100,000 and also 100,000 volunteer hours uh, for Big Brothers, Big Sisters, 
uh, of America's Mentoring Pro uh, Brothers in Action program. Now, the documentary that they did, uh, American Promise, was started when their son was five years old. Um, they turned the camera on the family and their son's friend, who was also starting school, to make a documentary about both the challenges and the joys um, of educating young black boys in this country today. Believe it or not, Michelle and Joe have produced and directed two narrative films and three feature-length documentaries, all while raising two sons in Brooklyn. Michelle is a graduate of McGill University and also Columbia Law School, and she uses her background in critical studies, race and human rights, to inform her documentary work. She was an early pioneer in the, in the Web W.0 revolution, and Michelle began her film career working with the video advocacy group Witness, where she used video and the internet to structure human rights campaigns around the globe. She was born in Haiti, and today is actually a very special day because she has completed possibly her last test toward, toward gaining U.S. citizenship. So we're eager, and congratulations. Um, Joe Brewster is a Harvard and Stanford-educated psychiatrist who moved to New York City to pursue media studies in the service of social change. In 1996, he wrote and directed his first screenplay, The Keeper, uh, which was an official selection competition section of the Sundance Film Festival that garnered numerous awards, including an Independent Spirit Award uh, nomination. Now we have as a moderator Robin Wood, who is also a wonderful board member of the Open Society Institute here in Baltimore. And although she's a California native, she became active in Baltimore's civic life soon after arriving here in 1995. Over the ensuing years, she's worked in nonprofit management and governance roles with a number of Baltimore area grantees and organizations uh, that we support and others in the, in, the, in the community. And in each one of them, she's really focused on breaking down barriers to opportunity for residents who find themselves locked out um, of the mainstream. Robin, for example, served as co-chair of the Safe and Sound Campaign Board of Directors and subsequently served as its campaign deputy director. In addition to her service at the Open Society Institute, um, she's also served on the governing boards of the Community Law Center, Associated Black Charities, Baltimore School for the Arts, Baltimore Community Foundation, and the Center for Urban Families. And also, she is amazingly a, a recent graduate also of the University of Maryland uh, School of Law. Hard worker. Um, so before we begin, I want to just share a few um, logistics. Uh, when I um, end my introduction, we're going to actually have a chance to see a nine-minute encapsulation of American Promise. So if you haven't been able to see the film or would like just to be reminded, you'll see that. And then right after that, uh, Michelle, Joe, and Robin will um, take their places on the stage. And after they have some conversation, uh, we will have the chance for a question and answer section. Um, and so I would just ask you at that point to use the microphone so everyone can hear you. Um, and finally, just a word about us and this series. Um, if you haven't done so already, please do go to our website. It's um, audaciousideas.org, so www.audaciousideas.org. And if you go there, you can sign up to get um, just invitations to programs of this kind that we sponsor and other kinds of, of relevant information. So I really do hope you do that. It's wonderful to have you all here. Um, and we 
we rely on you to tell us the kinds of programs that make sense and are, are going to be valuable. So please do stay in touch. So with that, I'm going to start the video. So welcome, everybody. And I, let's give them another round of applause for the... I just want to say, isn't this a beautiful-looking audience? What, what, what do you think? They, how do they compare with Omaha or Minneapolis? Omaha. Hello. You're putting me on the spot here. It's packed. It's very nice to see everyone, and thank you. Well, welcome to both of you. Thank you very much for being here with us for the Talking About Race series here in Baltimore. Um, and I will not put you on the spot. Uh, I don't want to put you in the position of feeling that you have to speak as education experts, and we talked about that a little bit earlier. I want to make sure that everyone is clear that you all are filmmakers first, um, psychiatrist, uh, a human rights activist, um, filmmakers, and parents, um, but not education professionals. So this is a film uh, that depicts your experience with your eldest son, right, uh, through his, his K through 12 education. And the book actually was conceived, as I understand it, as a way to share some of the knowledge you gained over that process um, with other parents. And you got that knowledge from a variety of sources along the way, many um, professionals in psychiatry and education and elsewhere. 55 experts. 55 experts. Um, and so the, the, you'll share uh, that you, the, this information that you gained on this journey with your, with your son. So let's get started. Um, I think a primary concern that um, most parents have is that their children, quote unquote, succeed in school, um, that they stretch their minds and uh, learn to read and write and compute and think critically, uh, that they're you know, respected and nurtured, so forth, right? I, I think we all agree that that's what parents are interested in and they're safe. Um, but can you talk a little bit about what your take is on how to create the greatest likelihood of achieving this for your kids, of finding the best? Um, school that best serves your child's needs? Either one of you. Joe, you want to start? Um, I, a couple of things. That, that, that clip was not a summation of the film. The film is a little bit different. That clip came about uh, when the New York Times asked us to do an opinion piece using footage. And they asked us to do it in two and a half minutes. And we tried, and we tried, and we couldn't do it. And so that is the result of trying to distill an opinion piece uh, in two and a half minutes. Uh, that being said, we strongly believe that we are not experts. But, but if you are raising a black child, you have to become a little bit of an expert. Because we believe there's a minefield out there. And what we discovered uh, is that a lot of people were feeling the same thing. Mm -hmm. Now it's in the, move, the, the, the news every day, uh, where one atrocity based on implicit bias uh, that impacts us all, everyone in this room has uh, implicit biases that are going to impact the way you see these boys. Uh, and so the question for us is, uh, is 
how do we prevent that from from impairing our son's educational tra trajectory? Mm -hmm. And what we what we like you ask, I'm gonna be ramble on. Michelle, you need need to cut me out, off if you feel I'm going astray. We we believe that the educational journey is not just reading, writing, and arithmetic, but it's a moral development, and it's a social emotional development, and a, a few other uh, developmental scales. But we like to focus on our son's ability to deal with implicit bias, and we think it's, uh, as I said earlier, death by a thousand cuts. But if I were going to give a couple of tools that are going to help. Uh, you and me see those boys as for who they could be. I, I really focus on uh, growth mindset. And when you say growth mindset, can you tell the audience what you mean by that? Michelle? Michelle, maybe. Well, in terms of the, I mean, there are, two, there are a couple of things that have evolved for us, certainly in terms of how we see um, our, our younger son interacting in the school environment, and growth mindset is definitely a key. By growth mindset, I don't know if there are many educators here in the audience who know the term. It's it's part of the uh, this ed education philosophy, and where you look at the brain as a muscle. We're not necessarily born smart or born in a fixed way. Our brain is a muscle, and every time we make a mistake when we learn, it's an opportunity to grow more synapses. It's an opportunity to become smarter. And that approach to learning is very important for our children to understand when they make a mistake, it's not a reflection on them personally that it's an opportunity for growth. And that is applicable not just for academics, but it's applicable for life. And it's also applicable, uh, this is discussed by uh, uh, Claude Steele from Stanford, um, and we talk about it in our book. Um, it's also applicable when they are confronting stereotypes and microaggressions. Um, if they are able to understand that their brain is growing, somebody telling them that they're not smart, they can they can have the tools to react to that. And so um, for us, when we look at how educators are approaching um, um, their classroom environment, their pedagogy, we very much interrogate that. And, and, um, and we've been in, in, in many discussions with teachers around that in terms of how they perceive certainly our younger son in the process. Um, I think that's one thing that's really important, this idea of a growth mindset. But another thing also that is important is understanding and seeing, is the school open to dialogue? Because part of we under, what we understand is, you know, uh, unconscious racism is, permeates everywhere and we all internalize it. The question is, not necessarily how do I stop my son from experiencing these? He's going to experience it. What happens when he does experience it. What do the teachers do? What does the administration do? What do his peers do? What do other parents do who are part of the community? And that's a big question for us. So um, when we chose a school for our younger son, the Brooklyn Friends School, um, we saw that there was a lot more openness to dialogue around questions of race, privilege, opportunity, equity. That started from kindergarten. Now, it didn't mean that he didn't confront issues. Right. He confronted issues of perception that we had to fight and come in and advocate. Sure. But the question is, how, how, how did everyone engage in that? And did we learn from it? And were, was change, what did change happen? Let me ask you another question. Um, you know, I 
in watching the film, completely understood, you know, your, your five-year-old is getting ready to go off to school and your choice of, uh, you know, why you sought Dalton as the place for Idris initially. Um, but I was less clear about how and why you decided to leave him there for the whole 13 years. Um, and the film didn't really get into the discussion between the two of you about evaluating that process and you know what was happening with him. And so maybe you could talk either of you about a little a little bit about that. Well, that was part of the difficult um, part of filmmaking, where you can't include everything. We had we get to have you talk yeah. about it now. We had to let go of some things. We actually did look for another place for Idris at the same time as Shayon was uh -huh. looking for uh -huh. a place, uh -huh. um, and we had long conversations with Idris um, and Dalton. Actually, when they found out that we were searching, um, approached us as well about some of the changes they said were going to happen in the high school. And uh, after looking at all of the options that uh, existed, some of the options were specialized high schools, other private schools, Idris actually came to the conclusion that he wanted to stay. Okay. And well, we were, yes? So, so we should ask the audience, like, oh, what, are, what were our decisions? What, what, what were the, what, what, what could we have done we could, we could have taken him out of that environment and put him in the most segregated school system in the United States, yeah. uh, where it, it is more likely that he not be given AP courses, uh, rigorous English and writing skills, uh, and very likely he might have had a little more social-emotional support. So we, we had to weigh a very heavy load. How are we going to support him? So we did the big math. We decided that he would get more social emotional support at home. That means something that we take for granted. Uh, hug him every day. Very hard with a 15 year old. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we kind of... There were what, other what, things uh, also that played in. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah. I'm just saying that, that it's easier with our younger son, and he's benefited from that. But we had to make sure that the teachers hugged him. And that meant showing up often. And when they attributed his behavior to his yawning, to one sort of uh, 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 thing, we would point out that you know he has yawning disease. I made that up. But the reality is <laughs> the teachers got to know us and they began to know him so that they could reality test his implicit bias. Also, some of the things that uh, Dalton approached us about, there are a couple of key things. Um, one was that uh, beginning in ninth grade, Idris had an African-American male advisor and teacher who really became his shepherd, really, his mentor, his kind of everything. And they still have a very close relationship. And that really helped that journey along the way through high school. That presence of, uh, of an African-American male in a position of authority who was both um, nurturing but also had clearly high expectations. He's, he's in that short piece there. Um, also, there was a larger number of students of color in the high school. Larger people, students came from prep for prep program, which is, uh, uh, I don't know if there's prep for prep here, but uh, similar to a better chance. Mm -hmm. And so there was an environment more uh, where the social and emotional were being addressed more. Okay. And one of the reasons for that is because they're looking for social emotional support from their peers. 
And so we thought he had a, a gang. And that included the other students coming in, but also he joined a citywide organization called DAIS. It's a diversity initiative where uh, boys and girls of color come together and create their own social network. Important. Uh, great. Um, so, you know, I was struck by, uh, you know, again, watching the film, you know, like, is it really possible that after all the effort that we all put into getting our kids into the best school that we can find for them, that maybe school is, in fact, not enough? Um, I think the point is made in the film and also in the book, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, um, that many and perhaps most of the students at Dalton were getting tens of thousands of dollars of additional support, um, you know, beyond tuition and beyond what they had to offer uh, your children in, what, you know, what is to be the top, one of the top schools in the nation. So um, can you talk about that a little bit? Like what impact that has on, you know, the notion of, a, of an a, a equalizing a playing field, leveling a playing field, or closing the achievement gap? I mean, there are all of those issues. Um, and if money is what divides it, how, how does that affect children, you know, kind of across the board? No, Michelle, you're going to have to answer this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're serious, huh? Okay. <laughs> well, uh, this is when you, we start, I guess, speaking more from a systemic perspective, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think, um, I don't want to say necessarily a level of naivete coming in, but um, the sense that Given the type of background that we had, we were equipped to handle whatever was going to come at us. And as you strip through, you understand that these institutions, and I don't want to stay on the, uh, the private elite schools that ultimately when you look at them are part of looking to perpetuate the status quo to a certain extent, mm -hmm. and that we are invited into that environment um, um, and given piecemeal information along the way where the field is not level and by the time you find out, it's kind of hard to catch up, mm -hmm. which is partially why we wrote the book, too, so that it's a way of parents knowing kind of ahead of time what is it you're getting into. But I think at the same time, you know, Joe addressed this a little bit, is that the public school system sort of has a structure that's perpetuating a level of status quo as well that has to be questioned. So the question is, as parents in whatever institution you find yourself in, what are the tools at hand that you can use to better prepare your child within that environment? And one of it is definitely being aware that there is this tutoring going on. Mm -hmm. And then figuring out, well, what are the tools that we do within our means that can help either narrow that or, 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 in some cases, um, approach the administration. What are you talking about when you're talking diversity? Is it, what does that word mean? Let's push for inclusion and equity. And let's understand all the elements. Let's put all our cards on the table so that we know and then it doesn't become a personal issue. He can't do it because of this, that, and the other and not looking and self-reflecting on the other side of that coin in terms of what's making it difficult. And those are very hard conversations. But ultimately, there are administrations, there are schools that are pushing the envelope around that. And ultimately, it's about pressuring the parent community 
to uh, understand and have that that greater philosophy of inclusion and equity. Joe, did you have something you wanted to say about that? I, I, I am always, whatever environment I'm in, I'm looking at an inequitable playing field. And so how, how do I avoid that? You can't, but you become aware of it. And that's why we push parent groups. We cannot wait for the legislatures to change the law. We can't wait for President Obama. But what we can as parents understand that these uh, resources are available to some kids and not to others. And it exists in every environment. So we as uh, African American middle class, we can always look to the underclass and say, oh, we are doing better. We're actually not doing better. And, and in fact, it's a, it's a bait and switch technique that Frederick Douglass talked about uh, and that Franz Fanon talked about, where we are lulled into feeling that we, we've, we've made it uh, and our failure to look at the numbers and what's happening to us and what's happening to others uh, is buying into a system that just perpetuates itself. So I, 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 I'm looking for a school for my elder son I want to know how many boys are counseled out. I want to know how many boys take AP classes. I want to know what are your efforts to diversify the staff? Uh, and what does staff mean? Uh, is it the gym coach? Uh, <laughs> and so when we ask those kinds of questions, and we ask the same questions about the specialized high school uh, uh, that are, are that are, uh, that are dangled in front of our eyes. How many boys of color are in those uh, schools? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we basically are equipped to actually uh, to make a decision. Um, and I think we as parents and educators uh, can make a difference faster than anyone else. But I think, I think everyone needs to be uncomfortable in the room. And one of the areas that I think that we have to get more uncomfortable with is our, our, the discomfort of black parents. You know, if you look at our sons and our daughters, but mostly our sons, the consumption of media is through the roof. We consume more as middle class parents. We allow our kids to consume uh, more media than anyone on earth which is more than the amount of free hours we have in a week. So the question is, how can we erase a gap uh, without turning off uh, YouTube or Vimeo or what, what, what is our son watching? Vine. Vine. <laughs> and, and those are difficult questions. Uh, and, and, uh, and so it, we, it's not just pointing at what's done to us. But what kind of expectations do we have about ourselves? Yeah, very important. And, and, and so we can look at achievement, and we can look at the number of hours spent by all the different different graphics. And I'm sure there's a linear relationship. And so when, when the New York Times says we're abusing our kid because we ask him to study more than mm -hmm. uh, seven hours uh, or 20 hours, I, I guarantee you go on that staff, there's very few people who Kids are studying less, but they expect our son to 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 uh, to not be pressured. I do have a question for you about that. I was surprised a bit 
Uh, I know basketball was really important to Idris, and he played varsity the early as a as a freshman, I guess, right? And then was moved to JV the next year or whatever. But um, given that he was having difficulty uh, and basketball, you know, sports at school, particularly on a school team, takes up a lot of time. How did you balance that? Um, that uh, sports versus emphasis on academics, that's, that sort of thing. So, so, so let me just say this, because I'm the guilty party here. <laughs> uh, I, sports is important. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But, but it's not important uh, as, an, as a lifelong uh, goal for in terms of earning a living. Uh, the reality if if our son can participate in athletic activity on a daily basis or a weekly basis he's going to have a, a healthier and a longer life mm -hmm. the the other issue our son had ADD yes he had it and the question is how do you treat it in that environment how do you give him a tool f to focus well daily physical ac activity is one of the prime uh, solutions the, the options other than medication. Mm -hmm. And so we pursued that. The, the other thing is, um, um, you know, uh, our, our son throughout this, throughout his struggle, uh, never scored below the top 85, 90% in the country. Mm -hmm. And so we were within reach for uh, for for being successful academically in that environment, and we weren't willing to give up uh, a more holistic point of view. Well, it's a challenging thing. I mean, it's a challenging set of issues for parents. Um, I, you know, I'm a parent of four children, and the oldest was my son. And you know, you this poor first kid who gets you know trial and error. But um, you know, we tended to like when he wasn't performing, then something like sports might get taken away, you know, and, and I think later we feel, felt like that probably was not the right thing yeah. to do, you know, but. Yeah, we decided against that option because in some ways it was the only, it was really one of the, the anchors he really had at mm -hmm. school in terms mm -hmm. of his identity, in terms of his relationships, and in terms of opportunities for, 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 for moral growth and even growth about life, you mm -hmm. know, in terms of the experiences he was of having. winning and losing and teammates. And all of that. So um, it was key for us to keep going in that way and made, and using other ways to, you know, uh, uh, address whatever other academic issues there were. But it was really important for us to keep that balance. And, 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 and to speak to sports, because it's a big thing. I was on WEAA radio. And a woman called today and talked about the kids of middle-class families playing basketball in Maryland till late at night. And what are these parents doing? And and what I'm saying, there's a balance. We they they have X number of hours in a day. Uh, if your son's going to be an NBA player or a college player, he has to be a world's expert in basketball, and it's very rare to do that without putting in 20 plus hours a week studying for 10, I mean, playing ball for 10 years. So that wasn't what we were doing for our son. And uh, he was putting in uh, maybe 10 hours a week. And maybe a lot of that was on the weekend. Uh, but you don't exist in an environment like that w without living up to the standard, the academic standard. Right. And that was a few hours a day, every day. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Um, I was just thinking too, in, in light of recent events, for example, and one other thing, he played a lot of video games, which we cut down dramatically. <laughs> but sometimes we would find the games on in the middle of the night. Uh, but we were able to get that down uh, uh, to a few hours a week, primarily on the weekend. And so we would rather the sports balance the physical activity and the music yeah, than yeah. the. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I've just been thinking, you know, in light of events in Staten Island and Ferguson and so forth, um, you know, we've been painfully reminded um, that the public's largely irrational uh, fear of black males uh, has deadly consequences for our sons. And I'm just wondering, you've spent time with both, obviously, both of um, these boys, your son and you know, both of your sons and, and Sean and others. Um, and you know, how do our sons achieve the fullness of what it means to be American citizens? You know, to to have the freedom to question authority and to express themselves and to protest in the public square and so forth. Um, if a very real consequence of this is that they may be, you know, maimed or or killed. How do you deal with that with with uh, African American male children? Well, that's that's bigger than a sixty-four thousand dollar question. You know, uh, and we're torn. I can recall watching footage, because we didn't watch this footage every year. Mm -hmm. I, I watched footage of my son running around F.A.O. Swartz mm -hmm. with his friend uh, who was Jewish. And they were touching things. They were knocking a few things over. And I'm thinking, under no circumstances should my son be in that environment. He's going to get arrested. And so uh, I went to him and I said, what was going through your head? And I, I, you could have got arrested. And he came back to me later and says, the police did come to me. They did come to him. Uh -huh. And asked me if I, I was stealing. And so, but, and so, but my feeling now is uh, a little evolved. You know, my mom used to say you had to be twice as good. That's a death trap. I don't think we have to have that standard for the boys. I think they need to speak that back to power. And I think uh, I'm preparing my son uh, within reason mm -hmm. uh, to go to the next level. It's not my generation. It's not the police that are uh, that I had to deal with or that many of you had to, had to deal with. But I'm... I'm not willing to raise a child who has to be defensive at all times. At all times. Yeah, well, I know I think, you all talk a lot about talking about race yeah, with the I boys mean, I think, early. I think the bottom line is they don't enjoy full citizenship. Yeah, well, right. So the question is how do we prepare them? You know, how, how do we discuss things like Ferguson to them? Um, and I like to talk about how the promise is in the struggle. Um, it's not. It's it's the process. It's um, um, what you do with your life, and it's part of that racial narrative that we talk about. Um, our kids do better when we talk to them about race, mm -hmm. both the side of what to expect around the structural inequities that exist, the you know the cradle to prison pipeline, and and these kinds of issues. Uh, our son in our neighborhood has had. A confrontations with the police of no doing of his own just because he was walking down the street. 
but understanding how to prepare him from that. But also the other side of that is preparing him to understand his history, um, to understand the struggles that preceded him. It may sound a bit cliche, but it's true. You know, or even from um, the perspective of being from Haiti, being, you know, the first black republic where slaves revolted um, for their freedom, um, for him to be able to understand that and have an anchoring um, gives him more tools and more power um, um, to continue the work that has to be done. Anything? No, no, we can talk all day on this. We, we, on we this could one. go all night, right? Um, so it strikes me too. I mean, I, uh, in watching the film, you know, Idris starts as a little five-year-old trying to tie his shoes, and then you know pro progresses through. And middle school was a particular kind of challenge, which all of us have faced. Um, it seems to me that male children, kind of all of all stripes, tend to be uh, a challenge at that age um, in early adolescence. You know, they're disorganized and undisciplined and so forth. Um, does this? Do you feel like this plays out particularly differently for African American boys? And you know, did did uh, Idris and Shayan notice that they were sort of seen as different or other or whatever um, early? Or how did that how did that happen? Well, you uh, saw in the in the in the abdocs, he, uh, he was four and a half, four years old, and he came home and he says they keep asking me, "Am I rich or am I poor?" Mm -hmm. uh, that was his four-year-old classmates uh, uh, wondering, if, are you what we see on television? Mm -hmm. uh, but you can ask any three-year-old, um, and they will make decisions based on race, uh, because they, they understand there's a pecking order. Mm -hmm. and, and so when we don't discuss it, uh, they fill in the blanks. So they realize that Barbie is their only solution, and they spend the next uh, 40 years trying to be Barbie, as opposed to Idris or, or Shayan. Mm -hmm. So what we, I, I don't know if I'm even answering your question. So we, we didn't elect to have this conversation, but the earlier you can have it, the better. And sometimes it's not a conversation. Uh, and and so sometimes it's nonverbal, but if we're going to save these boys and make them whole, the the dialogue has to occur with parents and children, and then for the Chings, the larger society, it's got to ha happen between the people in this group. And the problem here is that it can it can't happen in a group this size. That when you're talking about issues of race and class. It's got to be only about six of us in the room. Yeah, uh, just one more thing I want to add in the racial narrative part. I mean, I don't know if people have seen the longer film or some of the discussions in the longer film. There are discussions around uh, racial narrative that even the boys uh, Shayon has in his trip to Africa um, with his high school um, uh, his high school club. But I think uh, what's clear is that sometimes it may look like it's not sinking in, which sometimes what gets us frustrated as parents, like they're not listening, but they are. And we just have to keep the same mantra going. And I see that with Idris because uh, while he was at Dalton, he picked all in his electives 
or even in his standard English classes, he would always pick the subject matter that had to do with African-American history or history of the African diaspora. And even now in college, he's taking these courses that are adding to his narrative that uh, uh, in some ways I think certainly in, the, in, in Dalton allowed him to feel validated within his peer group in terms of discussing um, 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 certain courses from a perspective whether it's African-American literature or history. Um, so um, it's important to keep the same mantra going because eventually it does sink in. Um, I think there were experiences. Um, it's so interesting for us because when we started this film, it was going to be really an exploration of diversity that this school was uh, was embarking on, and we had two the two boys, and we had three girls of different racial and economic backgrounds. So it's going to be this exploration and mosaic of how is this thing going to play out or work out, both in terms of challenges and and positive uh, uh, experiences. And as the girls in the film dropped out of the film, we hit middle school and the boys started to have their own experiences mm -hmm. that they were trying to sort out and that we as families were sorting out as well. So uh, it it's so the film kind of reflects that evolution and it's really them coming home with particular questions and we realizing well how do we tackle this from a way from a, from a perspective that keeps them whole and also you know um, where we are kept on our toes and we challenge uh, the institution. Mm -hmm. Just one comment, because we're talking about what we can do, uh, and I think we should talk about what they can do. And what do I mean by they? I mean people who aren't black, and, and they need to talk about privilege. I read something coming over here where Bill Bradley, uh, former basketball player and senator, talked about what he observed when he was playing basketball and he was getting the commercials and the black players who played uh, better were not getting commercial endorsements. And uh, the, the reality is that if we're going to deal with the issue of privilege and on a level playing field, I can't be the one saying that you're privileged. Yeah, I'm just an angry black man. Right. And, and so you have to talk about your own privilege, and that's a very difficult thing to do. Not only do you have to talk about it, uh, we know it's, privilege is intoxicating. And it was phenomenal. I'm going to go back to him, right? Yeah, go. <laughs> uh, uh, I said that uh, his, con his conclusion after Algeria and Africa was that it was never given up. It was only given up with a fight. And it doesn't have to be a fight with guns and, and knives and rocks, but it has to be a fight. And, and so it's your fight. Right now I'm going to protect my sons and my neighbors. <laughs> I'll get back with you when we're all on the same. But, but it's also with the understanding that by understanding privilege and its role uh, systemically as well as individually and, and the part, um, we're all better for it. It's not giving up something no, to re-examine it. It's not giving up something. It's gaining something for the entire community. Yeah, the I think that's exactly bigger. right. I'm sorry, go ahead. Luke. The pie gets bigger. And that's the important thing to, to really recognize. You know, that was one of the questions that I was going to ask. It's that, you know, in a way, it was something that the film couldn't go into at great length, but that the book does, really. 
is you know describing ways that um, you know addressing systemic issues in education is the, is not a one black family at a time kind of problem. That it is something that um, is has to be dealt with community wide, and just as you say, um, it can't just be uh, something that African Americans or Latinos are carrying that water on. Um, but then when we look at urban school systems that are 80 to 90 percent African-American or Latino, how do we engage um, folks whose children aren't in those schools to um, go to bat for uh, opportunity for the broader cross-section of kids who, in fact, are um, getting their education in those places? So, I mean, it's, it's a question that we have to um, Well, we can sidestep that. We can sidestep that question because it's not always education. And, you know, we were at uh, one of those big... Um, um, not law firms, but economic services. Uh, was it Merrill Lynch or one of the big ones? And we showed uh, clips from the film. And but we, but we showed them. We asked them, think about your financial services, uh, Goldman Sachs. And and there was silence afterwards, and then a lot of tears because one by one they began to talk about how implicit bias Im impacts them as black traders, and and whites began to talk about implicit bias, how it, it affects their business, uh, losing clients, not wanting the, bl the black trader. And so uh, it was a, a very interesting envi environment, and they made a decision to have further discussions about that in that office. But we had the same thing at, at Google. And uh, and we'll probably have it wherever you work. Well, there's clear, I mean, there's studies out there. Kellogg Foundation recently came out with this uh, whole report around the cost of racism, the economic cost of racism, from the prison industrial complex to education and not having the workforce needed, right. you know. And uh, these are conversations that need to be had so we can for the for the country itself to we really understand the price yeah. that we all pay right. for this yeah um, we probably should uh, we only have I'm trying to pay a little bit of attention to the clock here and I know we've got an audience full of folks who I'm sure have questions that they'd like to ask um, I one last thing I just wanted to say both uh, Shannon and Idris Idris made it uh, through high school clearly and on to college which were great and I, I, I'm happy about it and I'm, I'm sure that he's doing having great success at Occidental but I did pick up something from you guys in the film when, and I guess it's typical for parents, when um, college acceptances came in and, you know, you had expressed some disappointment, um, you know, about his options for college, and particularly after 12 years or 13 years at Dalton. And I just wonder if you could speak for a moment about that sort of feeling and, and uh, whatever you might have to say about your expectations and what you had hoped from that opportunity you were providing your son. And then we'll break over and get some questions from the audience. You want to take that, Michelle? I was going to say, <laughs> you should take that one. Has anybody seen the film? Okay. So uh, let me say this. Uh, my son worked very hard. And what it doesn't show is that we weren't that involved in, in high school. We were only, when we would get him a little bit independent, we would uh, uh, step back until someone calls us back in, mm -hmm. which was every now and then, mm -hmm. as you can see from the film. 
but but literally he had come a long way with including a learning challenge a very significant one mm-hmm. uh and he had to deal with all of these obstacles and I, i'm thinking i don't think i could have done that and i i thought it was an amazing journey that should have been recognized and and it was he's at a great school he's at the right school for right school for, for, him. for him right uh but you think if if i had scored in the top 10% of the students at berkeley or ucla a school with 25,000 people and 47 blacks uh in the freshman class they they might have accepted him all ap courses uh uh, 2100 board score, which is uh, what there's 80th, 90th percentile for UCLA. No, this, it, I was angry. Mm-hmm. And it, UCLA is not right for my son, trust me. <laughs> it's like, you know what, there's a scene, you didn't see that. And I was saying, you know, Idris, if there's a flashing uh, lights, you're going to go to the flashing lights as opposed to going to the school. And then he was interviewed later that day, and, and he says, you know, if there's flashing lights, I'm not going to go to the flashing lights. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's going to the flashing lights. So, But the point is that my anger is the anger of an African-American uh, uh, father whose son did almost everything right. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes... Because actually, for, for us, college is not that important. What's important? That our son is a critical thinker. Mm-hmm. And he's not going to take every answer. He's not going to see things are black and white. And you know what? He's a good guy. Yeah. And so, uh, and he's honest. Uh, so we're happy. But I was angry and le- growth mindset. I ca- I've gotten over it. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. Well, um, I know there are questions out in the audience. There are microphones just on one side. Okay. Um, so let me let me just say that because there are so many folks out here and there were likely to be lots of questions, I hope that everyone will make their question concise and we'll try to get some response and then keep moving so that as many people as possible can get their questions answered. So please um, give us your name and your affiliation and then your question. Um, Marshall Pittis, Pittman, just a concerned citizen. Uh, I just wanted to make a comment that I come from a family. My father and mother had 13 of us, eight boys and five girls. And all my uh, older, I'm the eighth son and the twelfth child. And all my older brothers and sisters were overachiever. <laughs> and I never wanted to uh, be an overachiever like them because they had PhDs, colonels in the Army. But I always knew my birthright. My parents always made sure that you know your birthright. For example, I'm a Marine. That was my birthright because my older brothers were Marines. My fraternity is my birthright because they were. And I think if we teach our children their birthrights and that nothing defined them but their family values. Um, for example, my father worked for Royal Typewriter. And I've been carrying, and he worked in the 30s and the 40s. And I've been carrying daddy's uh, work ID since I, I, I took it to Vietnam with me and, and brought it back to this country. And every time I think about my life and what I should be doing, I look at my dad, and I'm just amazed by this guy. 
migrating with my grandfather from Georgia to Hartford, Connecticut, uh -huh. and raising his 13 children. But we need to encourage our children to know their birthright and that racism don't define you. It don't. Don't let it define you. Absolutely. Don't, 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 don't let uh, other people outside of your community and your community values and your family value define who you are. Thank you very much. Hello. Uh, my name is Adam Jackson. I'm actually from Baltimore. Um, and I grew up in West Baltimore with like two brothers and, uh, you know, middle class black family. And so when I hear your concerns about as parents about what your son was interested in and what he wanted to do when he grew up, like all those things were the same concerns my parents had. And I guess the dynamic that really troubles me as a young black man, you know, that who does every who did everything right, went to school and those types of things. I feel like the problem a lot of these times in these situations, like I feel like from society's perspective, I'm the problem. And from even on the other side of it. In terms of like you know maybe programs that are created and designed to administer and help me are I'm viewed as the problem to be solved instead of the person that needs that just needs to be boosted and amplified. And so as a young adult or as a young person, what I kind of found in those instances is that there were there weren't a lot of programs that I saw as a young person controlled and administered by black people, like people that looked like me. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up having to be around a bunch of folks that didn't look like me, telling me that I was great, but I didn't have a bunch of people that looked like me doing that. And I felt troubled by that dynamic, and I'm, I'm troubled by it now as a black person in Baltimore trying to help my people. Mm -hmm. And so as parents, you know, I'm just kind of, I'm interested in your perspective on that dynamic as black parents, you know, with children having to go to people external to your community to get services and support. And what is your perspective on that? Do you think that folks should, you know, do you think we should have, just what is your perspective on that? You know, people having to go to folks external to your community sometimes to get support for your own family. So let me just say that a couple of things. We got to catch a train. <laughs> but I go to anyone who can give me the help, but I prefer black help. And, and let me explain. Let me give you the difference. Uh, my son had a math tutor. His name was Akeen. He was from Nigeria. He played soccer, and uh, he made a tremendous difference in my son's ability to think, okay, I can do this too. And, uh, and so I like the way he looked at Akeem. And I know I'm reading, through the uh, the, the, I'm reading through the lines, but he was proud of himself as he looked at Akeem. Hmm. And so I do that as much as I can, uh, because after about 13, he's not looking at me. And so Mr. Fisher made such a difference. But let me tell you what I do. I, I, if I'm going for black help, I'm getting competent black help. And I'm, I'm not asking for someone to, to give my son a pass. Mr. Uh, Fisher, as so much of these kids, you should read some of these papers. And, and uh, it's, uh, so I, I hear your, the dilemma. Uh, but it's very important that my son get a narrative that he can be great and it's done, been done before. And sometimes it doesn't come from my family. It comes from his peers and his immediate uh, circle. I think it's about trying to strike that balance um, while you know encouraging either in the work that you do or others that there are more you know people being trained to to provide the service. For example, really pushing. 
uh, to have more black educators uh, in all schools because whatever schools we're in, whether they're public or private, they're mostly taught by middle class white females. And um, this is something that needs to change. It'll change over a long run, but there are ways of approaching that um, to make that shift. And again, I go back, I flip it back to this question we were talking about earlier about the diversity benefiting everyone. The presence of a, someone like a Mr. Fisher, that, that teacher in high school, was beneficial not just to the African-American boys and other students of color. It was crucial for the white students as well because the society is changing. And they having to interact with an African-American male who's countered the stereotype, who's in a position of authority over their grades, changes their world perspective once they graduate, you know? Right. Um, and that relationship is key, and it's important to understand that we're going towards a global society where we're going to be majority-minority. Uh, majority and so that means that the people in position of authority have to shift. Otherwise, you know, we'll be sharing, you know, uh, statistics with um, the Global South in terms of economic uh, development. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Hello, I'm Jack Pinnell. I'm the founder of Baltimore Collegiate School for Boys. And I wanted to ask you, I've seen the movie four times, and I, I, I think it's a terrific movie. I think everyone should see it. In fact, I think it's so important that we intend to show it to our families as an example of how uh, parents of black males should think about uh, raising their child. And, and, and also what that means in terms of education and the investment of education. And what's very clear to me in private schools is that parents must be invested in their child. And I just wonder, uh, because I've seen the movie, the trailer did not show the parallel story of the boy who did not succeed at Dalton, the other black boy who did not succeed at Dalton. And I, I have a question about you two are well-educated, people living in a wonderful house in Brooklyn. Uh, you have social, you have economic, you have educational capital that I think, in my opinion, helped your boy be successful at his school. But what about the other family that didn't have, at least I gleaned from the movie, the same social capital, educational capital, and other kinds of capital? What about the, the, that, that imbalance there? And did that make a difference, what family resources are? And so you you ask a beautiful question, but but the train. pardon me, I got a train. <laughs> uh, uh, but but there's assumptions made. Mm -hmm. uh, let me say that other family made a lot more money than we made. They did. Absolutely, he was an IT specialist at CBS. The, mm -hmm. the mother's a nurse, mm -hmm. emergency room nurse. Uh, but she no, dies though. She does die. Uh, no, she uh, she had a brain tumor. There's a lot of stuff that went on with that. The point I'm trying to make is, we make assumptions about the family uh, based on w how they decide to live their life, uh, and so there was a difference. Uh, we had more exposure to those kinds of environments. But both of those families are college graduates. I think that kind of typifies what we're dealing with. African Americans are new to the middle class uh, for the most part. And, uh, and with that newness, you know, we're learning how to, how to negotiate it, right? And so that family had a little more negotiation to do. Uh, and, but you know, they provide, but they learned along the way. I should say that the children after Shayan uh, were, were much more successful, mm -hmm. 
because we learn by trial and error. trial and error in the poor first child. But, but, but also, I mean, not to put it all in the family, I mean, I think, you know, they, they're, we're all, we were all college graduates. I think, however, for their, where there are situations where there may be a, a bit of a lack of understanding of certain things, this is where the institution, the administrations, the educators need to step in, and there has to be communication between that triangle, the parent, the educator, and the and the youth on a consistent basis so, let so me that say we get to know each other and that the administration can better understand whatever environment that child is coming from and be able to either fill the gaps or have conversations with parents about what the best next steps are. Mm -hmm. So you can't so uh, institutions need to take more responsibility also for make, creating that bridge that with, with uh, 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 parents. Uh, I, th I think that we both do. The, the reality is that the difference, some of the difference between the families is that we were in that school uh, 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 and we're a lot more aggressive. And uh, we wanted them to know our son can do this uh, what is your assumption? Why? And 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 so I I think initially uh, Tony and and Stacy uh, were more hesitant to confront the teachers and confront the administration, and they were taking their recommendations, and many times they were wrong. And so, so and so, uh, but they learned over time. And I can remember uh, Stacy saying, I'm not sending my son to another play date unless somebody comes to, to Bed-Stuy. Thank you. Uh, but, and ultimately, her other children, those kids came back and forth. So they felt a lot more a, a part of that community uh, that the other schools, the other children attended. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay. Yes, yeah. yes, go ahead. All right. My name is Coley Tengale. I teach a social justice theater and film program at a Baltimore City public high school. And I had shared with my students over the last year um, about your film and, and your experience. And um, let me tell you, I originally saw the film almost two years ago. It was screening sponsored by the Black Male Engagement Project in a suburb outside of Baltimore, Towson. And I, I want to admit, um, my brother and my sister, I wasn't liking y'all at all when I saw the whole film. As my students have a term, they call it fluke. I said, they said, oh, here comes some fluky bourgeois people that believe if my child just get close to a white person magically, everything will be beautiful. They will be instant geniuses if I just get a little bit close to the whiteness. Uh, that and, was just and then... I was hot behind that. And then my students have another turn and say, well, Mr. Tengela, go in there. You're going down this signing. Go in there. And they got a term called getting in your butt. Go get in that butt. Go get in that butt. Let them know what you think, how you feel. But then I got here. You all are talking about microaggressions and speaking truth to power and how we have evolved. Man, you stole my thunder. I can't even get in your butt. <laughs> But I also have another statement. Okay. And it's this. The tragedies that have been perpetrated on African people's bodies and beings in America and people of color, um, all the hellacious things we know about kind of culminating with the tragedy in Ferguson. Now, 
it's tragic, but it's good. Like President Obama's beautiful My Brother's Keeper initiative, an unfunded mandate, may get funded now because white society will have seen that black folks love their children just as much as they love their white children, that we value and consider sanctified our bodies not to be abused and, and, and disrespected lying in the street. And the only reason that society is going to respect it now, let me know if you agree, is because we resorted to violence. Okay, mm-hmm. we threw a bottle of water. They came back with an armor-plated Humvee. Mm-hmm. All right, we talk about proportional response there. But it seems like it, the funding and the money will come in looking at the issue of the inequities in society and particularly the image of African males, when I said black men in America and black boys, differently because of it. I wanted to get your take in that as um, you go around touring and sharing your message. Thank you. So, so, uh, we're gonna give you. No, I'm sorry, bro, you missed your train, dog. <laughs> well, first of all, if I were gonna take a theater class, I'd be taking your class. <laughs> I, could, I could learn something there. I, I am not so sanguine about uh, President Obama and that initiative. And, and let me say that this, politics, right? So, so, so let me say this. We've been around the country, and it has very little to do with Obama. It's about parents, it's about teachers, and it's about people getting angry and, and, and not making the same mistakes. And so Obama's going to follow us. And, uh, and if we don't set the agenda, uh, then they'll set it for us. Yeah, and we have to make sure that whatever's created and movement that continues, because the movement was there before he came with his brother's keeper. This was a result of pressure, a pressure and influence from a number of key you know, organizations, including Open Society Foundation's Absolutely. campaign for Black Male Achievement, um, and part of that is really ensuring the continuity because he's got what two more years, and we don't know what's going to happen, or a year and a half. So I think it's really about investing in a, a movement that can sustain itself, whatever whoever is uh, whoever represents the political structure. Are you you're taking a that that's a that's a. That's a note from Omaha. They said, we're not going with anybody because these administrations can change at a drop of a hat. And, and what we need to do is empower uh, people to uh, deal with gentrification, increase the minimum wage, and stop suspending our kids at, at the age of four. Mm-hmm. And regardless of the administration, all I'm saying is it, I, I'm not looking up there. I'm looking here. Yeah. And, and if... If we all do something, uh, you can make an impact. We haven't gone to any cities yet where people are not talking about strides that we're making now. Yeah, on the ground. Um, I'm going to try to get you guys out of here by 8.30, so I think okay. there's one other person over there. Is that right, or two people? Uh, we can get, probably take two more questions okay. if they're quick. Okay, I'll, I'll be brief. How you doing? My Hi. name is Haroon Rashid, and I'm with uh, Baltimore City Public Schools. Um, my question is uh, just in understanding a little bit about your uh, your, your film and uh, your son's upbringing. I, I had a similar upbringing. My parents are are, are both uh, Stanford undergrad, Yale law uh, graduates, uh, and I grew up in a suburb in Seattle, Washington. Uh, my graduating class 
in high school had about 300 people. I was the only black male in my class. Uh, and that was basically my matriculation to high school. I was the only black male in my class. Uh, I had an older brother who was a uh, class ahead of me. Uh, and, you know, in trying to get that balance between that quality education, which is oftentimes um, not diverse, even for students in a uh, more diverse uh, school in those AP courses, they tend to be the only black face in those courses. Um, I didn't know if, uh, in trying to go ahead and create that cultural balance, if the conversation about attending uh, an HBCU uh, ever came into play in terms of, uh, you know, Morehouse. I'm a Morehouse grad myself. Uh, my brother also went to Morehouse. And that was uh, not by accident. It was uh, by choice. It was, um, you know, we can go to any school. It was a carrot that my parents held in front of us that, you know, you're in, in high school and this may be your environment in high school, but when you go to college, you can go to any college of your choice. Mm -hmm. And that was the uh, the choice that we chose. And so as you were thinking about colleges and UCLA's and things like that, uh, did, did the HBCU conversation ever come up? Yes. Yes, it did. Oh, okay. Go ahead. No, yeah, it, it did. It did. And we had some a lot of conversation. He was accepted to Morehouse, but you know, it was his decision. Um, and um, they, they called uh, a month ago and said, "Is he? Is he? Does he still want to come?" <laughs> <laughs> and they had some money, right? But but the reality is that it's it's uh, as strong uh, of parents as we are. It's really not our goal to tell our son what to do. It's our goal is for our son to be a decision maker. And he needed to go to a small college in California. You know, you know, you've heard of the Oedipal Complex? Well, I'm from California, and his goal in life is to kill me off. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's going to California to create his own destiny. And, uh, His dad's hometown, Los Angeles, is where he is. Yeah. So we can't stop that, and the, and the younger one, he's probably headed there too. <laughs> well, on that note, I think I will. Uh, do we have? Did you have a question as well? Okay, let's get that last question, and then I'm gonna thank you all and let get you catch let you catch a drink. My name is Richard Vaughn, and I'm a concerned grandmother. Now I have a daughter, like 20 years after another set of children, who excels. She's the first to go to college and graduate. She's now pursuing a master's online, and in some other college. She told me today. Problem is this: my daughter had a baby as a teenager. She was a gifted child. I sent her to the best I could. Uh, public schools for gifted children. She did good, she excelled, but she had a child when she was um, a teenager. And it just so happened that she never missed a beat, though. She never missed a beat. The baby was born in July, so she just kept stepping from September. Problem is that first child, uh, who's a teenager now, boy, has ADHD. My daughter refuses to even accept that. And um, some problems along the way. I'm worried about my grandson because he's lost interest in everything, and he stays in video games. I'm really asking you to think about these women who are not married. It was much easier for you. It's not easy because you had a team behind these children. Absolutely. But you had the single people like my daughter who thinks she's a supermom, who I know is non-existent, but she thinks she's a supermom. I can be a glamour girl, I can be a model, I can be a student, I can be a mother. With three children, you know, it's just impossible. 
she is uh, very invested in, in uh, education, but I see problems ahead for my grandson because in all this, the children get neglected because she doesn't have a support system there. She's in one city, I'm in another. So, uh, what, what's your name? Shabazz, Katrina Shabazz. Uh, Ms. Shabazz, how come we always get the most difficult question <laughs> uh, right before the train arrives? And, and, and I, I, I think there's a method to your madness, but, but the reality, everyone's trying to, to wrestle with that. And so, and so, even you. First of all, no parent is a failure, and uh, they just recently asked about this NBA player, no NFL player, who hit his child, and he's already been crucified in the media. Parents make mistakes, uh, and and we have a growth mindset about parenting. The ultimate goal is to have a better family. And so with your daughter, whatever happened, uh, I'm sure she can uh, turn that around. Sounds like she has uh, over time and with some help. The, the reality is that many of our kids are uh, ADD is a very complicated uh, deal. Well, African Americans uh, often believe that they are overdiagnosed, and that is true, but the same rate that white boys are overdiagnosed. S and, and, and so, the, and so the, the reality is when we are accurately diagnosed, we are less likely to take the medications if we need it. And so it's, it becomes a complicated dance of, around race and perception. Mm -hmm. uh, even we were subjected to it, and we know what the, the, the illness is and what it means and what it means to be diagnosed with something and the repercussions for that, of being placed in alternative schools that are, are not functioning. So all I'm saying is you have a big question. I can just throw a couple of things at you, and I, I really advise you to call me. Well, a couple or, of things. Wait, a couple wait, of things, though. I'm, I think I'm doing something, Michelle. Oh, okay. <laughs> you can reach me at, at Promise Film. That's my Twitter handle, or you can reach me at AmericanPromise.org. You like that? Yeah. Uh, which is our website. There's a lot of stuff on that website. There's discussions of ADD. There's discussions of implicit bias. Discussions of okay, you know, we talk a lot about how um, our youth need peer, uh, need the positive peer support, that that's who they listen to the most. Well, it's the same for parents. We really, in some cases, listen more to other parents than we do to experts around specific issues. When we pick up the phone or have a question, who do we call to exchange that information with? And I think that that's where that kind of support network needs to grow, especially for single moms. We had our parent networks that were built, some of, you know, informally. We encourage a lot of parent networks to be formed as we travel around and we support it through what we call promise clubs. And actually the book itself speaks in certain occasions on certain chapters around the specific question for single moms um, in uh, around particular issues. So, um, and you know, there's stuff out there. I think the support network is what's key. Ms. Shabazz, thank you for your question. All of you, thank you for attending, you guys. Thank you. <laughs>